Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. One of the great things about having a podcast is that it gives you an excuse to have an extended conversation with people you've admired from afar. Today's guest fits into that category. I couldn't be happier that Nicole Braddock accepted my invitation to chat. Nicole is a former litigator turned serial legal technology entrepreneur. She's currently the CEO and founder of Theory and Principle, a technology product design and development firm for the legal industry. Listen into our conversation as we talk about why and how Nicole transitioned from the courtroom to legal tech founder. Get her take on the most critical skill for founders and how small risk can reap big rewards. And I promise you'll be jealous when you find out where she was when we recorded this. Hey, Nicole, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm happy to be here talking to you. Well, thanks for joining us. It's Nicole Braddock from Theory and Principle, who leads one of the premier design and development, product development companies for the legal tech space. So you're joining us from sunny Mexico, I take it. I am on our last day here, so I'll try not to cry. That's great. <laughs> What's it been like to work during the pandemic? It's been fine, honestly. I mean, our, our organization is pretty well suited to remote work. I think the only challenge is trying to work with children at home, <laughs> which is uh -huh. the, the same problem that a lot of people are having and sort of trying to be sort of half a school teacher and half a you know, I'm trying to run a business. So my husband owns a business too. So it's been, you know, it's been challenging, but we're, we're pretty well suited for, for this type of work. Yeah, that's great. Well, how, what have you noticed the challenges your clients have faced? Have they been relying on you more, less? Yeah, it's interesting because um, right before the pandemic, we had planned to set up our first UK office. And, uh, you know, I, a few things have happened during the pandemic. One is that Certainly, we have, I think, a lot fewer barriers with working with clients globally. Clients seem a lot more willing to work across borders, which has essentially stalled our, our plans to open up a UK uh, office. Clients are, law firm clients are coming to us more and more with new ideas and new ways to communicate with their clients. I think that has been a big shift in, you know, how, how do we how do we find new ways to engage when we can't engage the way we normally do? So I, I can say that's been there's been a big uptick there. And then the other area where we've seen a big change is in legal tech companies. We do a lot of UX work for legal tech companies and we've seen a, a pretty big increase in work doing UX work for legal tech companies. I think something about, you know, the switch to remote work amongst all of these lawyers has made a lot of legal tech companies realize that in order to compete, they need better design. And um, I don't know, something's in the water, but all of a sudden everybody's paying attention to design right now. So <laughs> that's, been, you, that's been great for us. Do you think that change is sticky or do you think it sort of reverts back once we're God willing someday post pandemic? I think these are all sticky. I don't think we're going to lose any of these changes. Is your team, does your team work mostly, I, I assume your team as a tech company and a design company is skilled in working remote and virtually even before the pandemic. So as you said, that wasn't much of an adjustment for your team. I have clients sort of ask you, how does it, how do, how to have you done it? What lessons can we learn from you? 
So the one thing I'll note is that we do a lot more virtual workshops now than we did before. And so we're using a lot of tools like Miro that I think um, have become increasingly popular during the pandemic. So we have actually done a lot of training clients on how to use tools like that, sort of remote collaboration tools with their clients or internally with their innovation teams. What have you gained from using those virtual collaboration tools and what have you lost uh, in that process? Yeah, so the virtual, we use the virtual collaboration tools in two sort of key points during the product development process. One is in the early discovery phase when we're interviewing people, trying to you know get our arms around a problem, understand a person's workflow, um, and there are benefits to that. You know, we can we can do a lot more screen sharing. We can we can reach a lot more people this way as opposed to sort of flying in and and doing these meetings one on one. But there is a rapport that is you can't compete with in person for for building a rapport and making people really comfortable to have a conversation. So, you know, even, you know, especially on the justice side, when we're dealing with some more complex um, emotional issues, it's it's really nice to be able to sit with somebody and have them feel comfortable. Um, so, you know, access is greater, but some of the, that sort of emotional side is not as good. Um, on the workshop side, working with law firm clients, I honestly don't know if we'll go back to doing in-person workshops unless a client really wants us to. We are so, we find it so effective when we get so much more participation from a broader range of stakeholders when we can do them remotely. The, you know, we sort of have running video, you know, video conferencing while doing whiteboarding sessions using something like Miro down to a science at this point. Clients are responding really favorably. So I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I'll see a great use case for us to put boots on the ground to do these in the future unless a client really wants it to. Well, plus you, then you don't have to get in the room with a bunch of lawyers. So win-win <laughs> all the way around. Yeah. What are you looking forward to post-pandemic? I want to see people. <laughs> I just want to see people. <laughs> it must be difficult for you because you you not only get out with clients, but you've done a lot of speaking and conferences, and and you you strike me as very much a people connection person. Uh, that has to have been hard to be forced into that isolation. I mean, I know it's not isolation because of virtual, but from an interpersonal context standpoint. Yeah, it's it's difficult because I think we're we're pretty unique in the legal tech community of having really great people that I really like to see. So I miss a, a lot of the people that I, I care about and I normally run into at these conferences. It's harder to develop clients, of course, when you can't sit down with them. You know, our our business is a trust business and being able to sit across the table with somebody and look them in the eye is really important in developing that trust and that rapport. And it turns out, Stephen, that I'm I'm not very funny unless I can be standing in front of a crowd in person. So it's been hard for me. To, it's been hard for me to do a lot of these virtual talks because I feel like I can't. I don't know. It's 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 a, it's a constraining medium, and I feel like I can't, you know, flail around the stage and you know res respond with the audience like usual. Hey, you know, it's interesting you say that. I I, I grew up as a trial lawyer and. Staying in one place is always difficult for me. It's easier for me to move, whether I'm presenting to a group or when I used to be in a courtroom. Moving around is an important part of the way I think and the way I interact with people. And so one of the hard parts for me of doing these virtual conferences or is being anchored in a spot like you. I want to move around. Uh, yep. And so... Yep. I'm a yeah. former trial lawyer as well. I think maybe that's maybe that's where it came from, or maybe it's my sort of Mediterranean background <laughs> that requires a lot of 
hand waving and, and emoting. <laughs> well, let, let's talk a little bit about your journey. So you've gone from being a poli-sci major at Virginia Tech to one of the top uh, entrepreneurs in the legal tech uh, business based in Portland, Maine. That's a, are you where you thought you would be back when you were in, uh, in college? Is this the path you had laid out for yourself? Uh, definitely not. I went into the law because I, I wanted to do civil rights work. And that's, that's the area that I practiced in when I was a, a trial lawyer. I had always imagined that would be the work that I would do. I think what I realize now in retrospect is that no matter what field I had gone into, uh, you know, if I was an accountant, I probably would have ended up in a situation where I would have started my own company and, and sort of gone down this path of finding new ways to solve problems. So I think I didn't know that I had that in me looking back at college or even in law school or even early in my law practice. Um, but I think sort of the day I started my first company, it's like, oh, all right, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, what, what, what caused you to make that leap into the uh, unknown? You know, a lot of people talk about, I want to start a company I, I want to be an entrepreneur without realizing how difficult a challenge it is. It can be greatly exciting and successful as your prime example of that. But there is a, the first time there is sort of a, I assume a leap into the, into the unknown. What, what caused you to make that leap? Uh, honestly, for me, it was a matter of constraints. I lived in, I still live in the Portland, Maine area which is a small, small city. It's a wonderful city, so, though. It's a great place to live, yes. But uh, if you're looking for challenges and in, in professional challenges, it can be limiting. And that's why a lot of people leave the area. But that's also why we have a really high entrepreneurial percentage. The percentage of people who are entrepreneurs in the area is quite high because you have to get creative and think about new ways to, to craft a career and not rely on people to give you a career there. Um, so for me, it was really an issue of constraint where I, I knew I didn't want to be a litigator anymore. I looked around at what all of my other options were as a JD um, and then saw an opportunity with my first company and decided to just give it a shot. And it turns out that was that was a good move. What was it about practicing? What, what was it you liked about that? And what was it that caused you to think about changing? Certainly the hostility. <laughs> You know, the adversarial nature of litigation is uh, very challenging if you're a natural problem solver. And I think most entrepreneurs fit into the category of being natural problem solvers. So I think being constantly in an adversarial position really grated on me because it was so against my natural instinct. But I loved the subject matter. I, I love the law. To this day, I absolutely love the law. I love law school. I love I love everything about the law. I loved arguing in front of judges. I loved writing briefs. But when it came to sort of dealing with opposing counsel in those adversarial relationships, that's where I broke down and just really started. It started to get to the point where it was it was sort of stealing my soul a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. Are there pieces of the practice and your experience that you've drawn on to help build your, you, you've built now a number of companies. Are there parts of that experience that have informed how you've approached these companies? If so, what? Yeah, I mean, I think we talk a lot about the way we learn to think in law school and the way lawyers think and and create logic around things. And 
I think naturally when I'm faced with any business decision, I'm still using a lot of those same skills. You know, I want I want to know all the facts. I want to understand, you know, what what constraints I'm working in and then I'm going to make a decision and I can make those fast. And I think that I think there is definitely something to the way you're trained and your brain to work in law school and as a lawyer that that is effective as an entrepreneur. There's obviously a ton of things I had to fight against, though. I had to I had to undo a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. You're you're now in product development, design work, problem solving. Where does where did those skills come from? How did you teach yourself the various methodologies and components that have allowed you to be so successful in running those businesses? I, I'm a poli sci major myself. I know it didn't come from being a poli sci major. Yeah, you know, starting my first business, a lot of what I had to do was backfill basic business knowledge, you know, like econ 101, you know, how to how to look at a PL. Like, that's just the kind of stuff that you don't learn in law school, you don't learn as a as a poli sci undergrad. Um, so I think at to start it was really learning just basic business, which I didn't have any background in. And then when it came to sort of product and technology, those those it was sort of a result of just having an interest and following it down that path and learning everything I could and um you know I got lucky for the first software project I ever got, I absolutely fell in love and got to really dive in and it became a passion. And I will tell you for sure that I am not a designer. I am not, I, am, I don't even consider myself somebody who's particularly technical. I hire very good designers and very good uh, uh, engineers uh, to do the products. But what I do have is a sense of um, what the industry needs, where it's going, I understand the context and the background between all the products that we're building, the users that we're building it for, and our client needs. And I think all of those skills have been quite valuable. But beyond that, it's just about running a good sound service business, which is, you know, well, it's quite different than running a law firm. But in a lot of ways, you know, our focus is on providing the best possible service that we can. Right. For anyone who's listening, uh, you should go on uh, Theory and Principles website because there's some fabulous videos and presentations you and your teammates have done about your methodology and challenges and stuff and goes into far more detail than we'll be able to get into today. But you mentioned one of the things that's helped you be successful is hiring great developers and designers. And one of the things that's a discussion point that's out there in the industry is how many of those multi-skills should lawyers have to be successful in a new environment? You know, there's the debate about should lawyers become coders? Should they learn Python? As you've worked with lawyers, whether they be in A to J work or consumer work or law firm work or in-house counsel work, do you encounter that discussion? And if so, what advice do you give? I feel like that discussion was happening a lot, maybe three, four years ago. I don't hear it much anymore but my response was always if you want to be a tech entrepreneur i don't think you need to learn to code <laughs> i have written one line of code in my entire life and i own a software company you know you don't get much more technical than the work that we do um you know we actually build the software from the ground up constantly so i don't think you need to learn to code unless it's of interest and it's never going to hurt but i think if you're if you're going it down to, into your first venture from being a lawyer from law school, there's a lot of business that you need to learn. You gotta learn sales. And sales, I think, is the most important skill that we don't learn. And it's the hardest one for a lot of people to get their arms around, but it's absolutely critical to the success of, of any company. 
Right. So I think there's just a lot, uh, there's a lot more things that I think people can spend their time working on. You know, there's all these great courses at a lot of law schools now. Um, you know, I've lectured at a few of them, you know, Georgetown and Suffolk and, you know, schools all over the country. And I think those are great at exposing people to new ways of thinking and new ways of thinking about the law. But I don't necessarily think that we need to be teaching anything any more in depth than that in a law school context. I want to talk a little bit about some of the projects that your, your company has taken on and the methodology you follow. And one of the challenges you highlight, and it's something that our team has had experience with as well, is sort of solution jump coming in and having the senior partner, for example, say, no, I just want this. Here's the solution. Just go build it for me. How do you, obviously, that's not the way to be as successful as you could be in terms of developing solution sets for client problems. How do you deal with that sort of dynamic? What challenges does that bring you guys? And what have you learned about how to how to dress that down? Yeah, and that's that's a pretty specific to law firm challenge to our law firm clients. You know, we work with legal tech companies and, and they are they're usually they know they need to get it right. So that's usually not an issue with legal tech companies. It's not usually an issue with our nonprofit clients. Um, but as you stated, it's typically, you know, a partner sees a, an opportunity, they you know, might sketch on paper, this is what I want to build. And then they say, let's, let's go build it. We see our responsibility as an educator to not just our clients, but to the industry really on how to approach product development in a more thoughtful manner. So we do our best, you know, we'll, we'll explain, you know, let's, this is great, but let's back up a few steps. Let's interview some potential users. Let's try to understand the problem a little bit better. Let's create some prototypes. And some clients say, oh, okay, that makes complete sense. Before we go and invest all this money, let's make sure we're building the right thing. But some clients just want to go build it. And so we see our job is to, you know, make sure that clients understand the risk that are involved there. And one of the things we do right up front with a project is we create an assumption register. So let's list out every assumption that we're including in, in this product idea that you have. And typically we'd go and validate and make sure those assumptions are correct. But if we can't, then we have this entire assumptions list sitting here. And if any of them are wrong, it could risk tanking the success of the project. So we offer that to clients. And if they still say, let's let's go ahead and build it, then then we'll build it. And I will say that that's not always the wrong choice. Uh, you know, there are some circumstances where you need something that's very, very tactical, you know, product that needs, you know, turn around very, very quickly. And we'll go in and we'll build it and we get it out the door because sometimes that's faster than, you know, that, that's a great prototype to get out the door. If it takes us, you know, three to four weeks to build, let's do it, let's get it out and let's not worry about the, the rest of it. So we, we can we can get some learning once it's out. So it's not always the answer, but but typically slowing down a little bit and making time to, to understand user needs is is quite valuable. Walk us through, if you would, at, at a very high level, and there's way more detail on your website about how you guys approach from an optimal standpoint, from your from your process and your product development and your your validation. What's, you guys have a very clear thought about how the best way to approach this. Give us the high-level view of how you guys approach these challenges. Yeah, and I will tell you that every project, at the end of every project, we review this and we have lots of internal robust debate about, you know, how we should redefine optimal because optimal changes. And for every project, there are there are things that we cut out, there are things we add in depending on client needs, depending on budget. But we there is a sort of holy grail optimal, this is how we can get you to the highest level of success process. And, and we've gotten there over 
you know, many, many years of building these products. And so generally we start with what is the problem? Who are we solving it for? And we sort of typically will run a, a workshop with the client at the start to understand their perspective, get all of the information that they have in their head and really do uh, more of a level setting. And then from there, we'll go and interview all the stakeholders. So that will be potential users, that might be law firms, that might be staff members, it might be administrators, it might be IS teams, whoever might be touching different parts of the product or irrelevant. Our goal there is to derive insights that we will then bring back for a workshop where we say, okay, well, we ran through these issues with this, this group of people. You know, typically we have these huge spreadsheets of, of sort of data that we collect from these interviews and turn them into insights, actionable insights, and say, okay, well, I know you thought that this was going to be a really important part uh, for these users, but really, like, what we are hearing is that this is the big issue. Um, so we'll go and share those insights back to the clients. From there, we'll do some, maybe we'll run a sketch session with the client. We might do some sort of high-level workflow, but we'll create a prototype typically from there, which can be, you know, usually it's a clickable mid-fidelity prototype. We take that back out to all the stakeholders. Um, it's a slightly different round of interviews because this time we're saying, okay, here's a, here's a solution that we have. And we're trying to understand, you know, does this solution meet those needs and provide value? So it's a slightly different different type of research. Um, we come back, we iterate a few times, and then we move into, um, you know, full UX design, full UI work, and then design development, which we do in, in sort of standard sprints, two-week sprints from style development cycles. And then we typically divide like a big product into several releases. We try to get a release out the door and live into the public. We, we get a ton of information from that, then we'll move on to the next release and, and sort of course correct as we need to. When you say products, Tell us what you mean by a product, uh, Nicole, and corollary to that, particularly as you're dealing with law firms, um, do you run across the lawyer resistance to having the work they're doing be reduced to, quote, products? And if so, how do you overcome that? So when I talk about products, I mean any sort of web property that we're creating for our clients. So it's any anything sort of digital that we're creating, which typically in the law firm context is gonna be a web application. Um, there are a bunch of people who are building native applications, like the type that you, do you download from an app store onto your phone, but we, we see very limited use cases for that. Um, so we're typically talking about some form of web application. Um, it might be, usually they're either mobile responsive or mobile first, but, but they're web applications. Um, and to your question, I, I, that's not an issue that we run into at all. We don't run into issues, issues of lawyers being precious about, oh, this is what I do. It's very, um, you know, it's very uh, bespoke and you can't turn it into a product. I think most lawyers are rational enough to recognize that, yeah, there are pieces that we can turn into uh, something that's a bit more productized um, and, and leaving me to the, the sort of higher value work. That's that's really not an issue that we have. Um, the issues that we have are more around, you know, not wanting to show potential clients an unfinished product, uh, not wanting to talk to them about new ways of working together for fear that it might open up some can of worms. Um, those are more the issues that we deal with, more uh, sort of guarding the ownership of various clients on behalf of partners. You work across the legal ecosystem. You do A to J stuff, you do consumer stuff, you do law firm stuff, you do legal tech stuff, you do corporate work. Is there one part of that system that, that brings you more satisfaction than others that you have a particular passion for? Or is there one that's more challenging than others? 
How do you how do you approach those projects? I know we love all our children the same, but yeah, and I I can talk about the pros and cons of each because I I do love them all the same. I mean, obviously, I, I'm a former civil rights attorney, so doing the the access to justice work is is core to my interest and mission and passion. Um, but those products, from from a product standpoint, have challenges, right? Typically, they're grant funded. So we build a product, the grant runs out, and then we don't have that space to iterate and to continue working on a product. So from a product perspective, those can feel less satisfying. When we work with law firms, we're typically working on products that have a commercial component. So the law firm has a lot more incentive to continue to iterate and improve and make this product truly um, a success. So, so from a purely product perspective, that can be more satisfying because we keep iterating, we keep getting closer and closer to the right um, product for their for their users. Um, legal tech companies are great to work with because we're usually dealing with much more cutting edge issues. Um, so we get to see what the latest things that you know these great ideas from all these brilliant entrepreneurs. Um, if we also work. You know, so we do a lot of redesigns of. 20 year old legacy legal tech products. And those from a design perspective are such interesting challenges to roll up your sleeve and say, okay, this thing has millions of users. How are we going to take what is a very functional product that's delivering a lot of value and make it truly seamless? And from a design perspective, those are incredibly stimulating. So I would say purely from like a passion perspective, the, the justice the justice work is, is the most satisfying, but um, you know, there's different, different types of, satisfying work in this space. Give us a couple of examples of some of the products you're you're most proud of or you, you found most interesting and sort of what challenges you had to overcome to get those to to market or, or into place. Yeah, and this is typically where I'm limited to talk a bit more about the justice products because most of the law firm work we do is is under uh, pretty strict <laughs> NDA. Yeah, and completely, completely understand. <laughs> But there's plenty to talk about on the justice side. Um, you know, this year we've worked on a couple of projects that we were particularly excited about. One was um, a pre-election product called Read the Effing Directions, which uh, was aimed at young voters and trying to figure out how do we make these legal requirements for getting registered and for filing um, ballots uh, more easy to understand and make the requirements shareable. And, you know, we the, the data shows that young voters are five times more likely to have their votes thrown out. Uh, because of a failure to follow directions. So that was a really fun one for us. I love the caption of that um, particular product, by the way, uh, read the effing instructions, uh, because it's, it's, it's so clearly tied to the audience you were, you're going after and brings a bit of humor and, and lightheartedness to a very serious topic. Um, how successful was the product? Uh, it was quite successful. It got, um, you know, from from our perspective, we built and launched that in, we designed and launched that in about four weeks, which is quite a feat on our end, and then had it out for the first, for a couple of months uh, ahead of the election. And um, the usage, um, certainly, I, I haven't seen the numbers at like sort of immediately following election, but they they far outpaced our, our expectations. So, um, you know, it, it, that was a fun project for us because we're, we're typically either designing for lawyers or we're designing for sort of a broader consumer set. So having the ability to design for, you know, young young digital native uh, users is, is, is a fun, fun change for us. 
And by the way, like my feeling is lawyers, lawyer products shouldn't be too different from consumer products that we use, which I think is a big mistake we've made in legal design to date. Um, but this, this allowed us to play a little bit more. So let's see, in other products, there's one that I really am passionate about right now that we're working on in Wisconsin with an organization called Liftane. Um, and the thing I like about this product is it is, it is purely passive justice. And that's been a big thing I'm, I'm really interested in right now is how do we make the justice system completely or as passive as possible? So what happens in this product is a user goes in, they enter their first name, last name, date of birth. We then go out and we pull records from, from the county courts, from the Department of Justice, from uh, soon to be the Department of Transportation, Child and Family Services, and we come back and we tell the user, hey, based on what the information you gave us, it looks like, for example, you have an eviction record that's eligible for removal. Do you want us to take care of that? They say yes, they enter a few bits more information, we populate the form, and then we also just mail it to the court. So within like three steps, the user has completely resolved this issue they didn't even know about that could have gotten in their way of uh, renting other apartments, for example. So I, I'm, I think that's a fantastic product and really a model for where the justice work is going uh, from here on out. That's cool. Was that a problem brought to you by the good folks in Wisconsin? Was that a problem your team identified and hooked up? What was the genesis of that product? Yeah, so our client actually won a competition with um, Schmidt Futures, which is uh, Eric Schmidt's foundation from Google. Um, and the, the challenge there was how do we uh, increase the income of the county residents by 10%? And the, the thesis here was that if we remove legal barriers to more gainful employment, we can increase, we can increase uh, income by 10% and lift people out of poverty. So the client came to us with all of that background. We were involved during the RFP stage, giving our opinion on, on the sort of um, novelty of this product, but they had they had already done a lot of the legwork before it got to us. That's cool. That's uh, th That had to be very satisfying to your designers and your team working on the product. Uh, yeah, especially from a, from a UX perspective, when we can make things that, that hands-off for people, uh, that's, that's really exciting for us. What are the skill sets you have in your company? Walk us through a little bit about what your team looks like. Yeah, sure. And it starts from the beginning. You know, when we first have a product in or a first idea or concept, we have a strategist that works on that. The strategist's job is to facilitate the workshops with the clients. Um, they're skilled at sort of getting information out of people and making sure we're all on the same page. Um, the strategist will then go do a bunch of UX research. So they're the ones who go do interview users, come back with insights, help sort of craft the strategy behind the product. Um, then, you know, typically a UX designer picks it up to do wireframes, that, that sort of work. We have UI designers, their focus is on um, creating mood boards, creating styles for products, you know, fonts, colors, imagery, that sort of thing. Um, we have project managers. We have a layer on top of that called a product manager, whose job it is to make sure that both sort of our clients' needs are met, while the users' needs are met, while the development team's needs are met, while our theory principles principles business needs are met. So that's um, that's sort of a, a master puppeteer type role. And then we have, um, typically we have a front-end developer and a back-end developer working on a product, and then all of their code gets passed through a, a QA engineer. So that's sort of a core team that we have on a on a typical project. Oh, that's great. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of different talents that come to play to make it work. I assume you have uh, people come to you looking for advice about what it is like to become an entrepreneur? What advice do you give people interested in starting up their own company, starting up their own business? 
Yeah, I usually have a couple of core pieces of advice. Uh, one is that I always preach authenticity. Uh, I think when we think about things I had to shake off from being a lawyer, it was that sort of professional veneer that we put on everything, which, you know, when you're standing in front of a court, that decorum is obviously very important. Um, but I didn't start being truly successful until I let myself be myself publicly and, and treat my team how I, you know, how I treat people in my life and um, sort of letting go of some of these like sort of false veneers that we stand up. I think that gets in the way of, of successful entrepreneurs. Uh, the other thing that I recommend is that you don't have to take huge risks. And I think that there's such, you know, when, when you think, hear, see how people talk about entrepreneurs, like on Twitter, they're like, oh, what a badass or what a you know, amazing person. Like you don't have to be a badass or an amazing person. You don't have to take these crazy risks. And a lot of people who come from, you know, less advantaged backgrounds, like we, you know, we don't have the, 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 the comfort of taking those huge risks. So I think that um, you can start a very successful business and grow a very successful company uh, without completely risking your whole life. And I think that it is tales like that that prevent a lot of particularly like women with children or other people who, who uh, don't have a strong uh, safety net to fall back on to uh, keep them from being entrepreneurs. So I, I, I think that that's something we need to dispel. Absolutely. What's the genesis of the name of your company, Theory and Principle? Yeah, so it's the the principle is, is you know we're we are not a nonprofit, but we are very much a mission driven organization, right? We are built on principles around a belief that we need a strong justice system in order to have a strong democracy, and um, sort of this core this, these core beliefs that we hold in our company. Um, and then uh, the theory part is based on the fact that um, I think there's a lot of software developers who just build things uh, without thinking about it and the sort of intentionality of our work. Uh, you know, we, we always have theories that we're testing and validating underneath our work all the time. So uh, so it's really sort of intended to reflect the how intentional we are about our work. That's fabulous. Well, we're, we're out of time. Nicole, thank you so much for spending a half an hour or so with us and giving us a little bit more on your company and the great work you're doing. Keep it up. You're, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really grateful that you invited me on. Well, we, we appreciate you making the time and have a safe trip back. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.